0: The free Vision app is where you'll find a growing range of on-demand audio and video to help you look to God daily. Search Vision Christian Media in your app store. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision.
1: How often are our imaginations ignited when we hear inspiring stories of sacrifice, of courage, and of servanthood? Well, our special guest today has told his story in a new book called A Doctor in Africa. He tells why he chose the path as a surgeon to work in maternal health care for some of the most impoverished and disadvantaged women in Africa. He could have established a lucrative Australian surgical practice, but he chose a path inspired by God. Over two decades, he's become recognised as a world expert in obstetric fistula surgery, operating on women with a debilitating condition resulting from obstructed childbirth. There are more than two million women living with untreated obstetric fistula in Africa and across Asia. Our special guest today is Dr. Andrew Browning, who first connected with the legendary late Dr. Catherine Hamlin over 20 years ago, and since then, Dr. Andrew Browning has spent nearly two decades in Africa establishing maternity hospitals with his own charity, the Barbara May Foundation. Dr. Andrew Browning, A.M., is an Australian-trained obstetrician, gynaecologist, and senior fistula surgeon. Andrew Browning, a special welcome along to 2020.
0: Yeah, thank you, Neil.
1: Andrew, a doctor in Africa, but at heart you're a boy from the New South Wales Southern Highlands. Uh, home for you was growing up around Boweral. Uh, just take us back to that home place, uh, the place you grew up, the place you called home because it was a significant place for things that God was doing in developing your life. Give us some insights around that.
0: Yeah, and I had a idyllic life childhood, really, growing up in a what was then a small country town. Bower has become quite a, a big, busy place now, but then uh, when I grew up, when I was a child, it was a very free place, very small. You really knew everyone in town. And uh, my friends and I, we'd have a, a life of great freedom, running around um, along the creek and in the forests and up the mountains, exploring caves and all sorts of things. And um, yeah, so it's... I mean, it still has a, a very significant place in my heart because it's, I grew up in a, a church in Barrow. My family were um, Christians and I was sent off to Sunday school every every morning and it's where I committed my life to Christ in the youth groups of Barrow and my um, first decided I would be a missionary doctor was uh, growing up in that church and speaking to and hearing from returned missionaries. Yeah, so, Beryl, um I'd love to get back there. I'd love to, to live there again one, one day, but um, that, that might be a long way off.
1: You know, there are people listening to our conversation today in small country towns all over Australia, and the idea of taking someone from a small country town setting, uh, shaping their heart, shaping their life, and taking them to a place in another nation in another continent and uh, and like Africa the idea that there could be a connection between small country town beginnings and serving God in a significant way do you often think about that and yeah uh, you know, obviously you, you probably marvel over the way God has taken you in that direction but uh, for people listening to our conversation today this is why your story is such an inspiration that God can take you from even a small country town setting and use you in a significant way. What are your thoughts uh, for the way God takes you from places like Barrow and puts you in places where you're really needed? Um,
0: yeah, it's just, it, it comes from sitting at the word of God and sitting at the, the feet of God and asks, uh, submitting your life as a servant. You never know where God may take you. He um, could have called me to be um, a minister in battle or he could have done, or a small country town or a doctor in a small country town either of those ones would have been wonderful if I was truly serving god but uh, he's put in my heart the desire to serve the poorest in the world uh, by changing my heart from the inside out um, and so that change in my heart is, has driven me to want to seek and serve God. And uh, I, I thought to myself, well, what a better way to serve God than being a missionary doctor. And God has just certainly blessed um, our foundation with all the means to be able to build hospitals, to serve the poor, to minister to the poor. And I couldn't have done it without God. I couldn't have done it with my own strength. It was it was God's doing and God's leading. And uh, the miraculous answers to prayers along the way is just confirmation that it is God's ministry. has nothing to do with our strength. But when you follow God, you never know where you may end up.
1: We often love to talk about the desires of our hearts and how God shapes those and when does he do that. But for you, you trace that back to being just six years old and a visiting nurse at Sunday school. That must have been quite an impression she made.
0: It was. I mean, that's where I first started to think about being a missionary doctor. I was in Sunday school sitting on the floor, the wooden floor of a cold barrel Sunday school room um, at the feet of um, this returned missionary nurse from Tanzania. She was a senior missionary and she was entertaining us with all sorts of wonderful tales about lions, about missionaries, about different tribal groups with their bows, and arrows and spears. And for a young six-year-old growing up in country New South Wales, that was eye-opening, tremendously exciting. And so I thought from that moment that, yeah, I'm going to be a missionary doctor too and um, uh, serve God like that. But it was more of a romantic, um, exciting, childish uh, thought. But I grew up in that church and actually committed my life to Christ when I was 14, so some eight years later. And that's when I first really, the penny dropped that Jesus actually died for my sins and wanted a relationship with me and thought, I thought, yes, I'm going to commit my life to Christ, and Christ worked a miracle in my heart and um, and changed me. And then I thought those early thoughts about being a missionary doctor. That's probably how I would live my life. And so um, it was lots and lots of steps on the way. It wasn't always easy, of course. Um, there was lots of struggles, lots of doubts, times of great difficulty. Um, but God's coaxed me through, and um, here I am today, some well, 30, 40. 50 years later, uh, still trying to serve God uh, with the gifts that he's given me.
1: It's helpful, isn't it, when you've got a family who are also inspired in areas of mission and areas of service. And uh, there's two very special women that you uh, do honour in your book, and that is your grandmother and one of your aunts, uh, who served in really, really uh, tough situations uh, in other nations give us an impression here as to how much of an effect it has when you've got family members who've gone ahead and they've served in tough situations
0: well most of our my father was one of eight and uh, most of our family ended up serving the Lord in in ministry or missions uh, mainly in outback Australia and uh, but my aunt uh, moved to Ethiopia uh, at the age of 22 in 1974 and she's an extraordinary, extraordinary lady. I know many, many missionaries who have devoted 40, 50, 60 years of their life to um, serving the poor. And um, But I think my vow is on a total different um, level to her, to, to them, rather. She um, has married into the nomadic Afar tribe of Ethiopia and runs now runs a huge aid organization looking after one and a half million Afars. I mean, when she, this is this nomadic tribal group called the Afar and when she um, first went there, the language wasn't even in writing. It was only 2% literacy, so they had to put language into writing. And then when they taught people how to read and write, they realised there was nothing for them to, to read. because nothing had ever been written in Africa. So they had to go around to you know, publish periodicals, little booklets, newspapers, um, books, uh, so people could actually read. And then they had to train health workers, and you know, the, the list goes on. And now her organisation... Um, pretty well supports one and a half million Afars of health, road building, literacy work, um, water harvesting, veterinary work, emergency aid relief, um, you name know, it, they, they they do it. And uh, Val, I mean, she's, she's married into the tribe. She lives like a nomad, her entire worldly possessions, um, a couple of dresses and a pair of flip-flops, and um, she sleeps outside every night. She's 70 now. She still lives like this. She's as tough as tough can be, you know, walks across the... Afar Desert, the hottest inhabited place in the world, uh, to immunise children with, with camel caravans and making ice um, drops uh, with solar powered refrigerators, so they can store the um, the vaccines to immunise you know tens of thousands of children against um, measles and and um, polio. And, yes, she's absolutely tireless, and so yeah, having um, someone like that in the family, um, you can't help but think this is. Maybe what I, a career I should follow. And uh, that's how I first got to Ethiopia and um, worked my ass in the desert, in the Afar desert, uh, and visited Catherine Hamlin at the fistula hospital and then got offered a job as a fistula surgeon. But um, the other significant lady that's molded my, my life in our present life, I guess, is my grandmother and Val's mother, whose name was Barbara May. And in um, 2009, we started the Barbara May Foundation uh, to. We'll talk about fistulas in a minute, I dare say. But uh, what I've been doing is fistula surgery, treating you know, six to 700 fistula ladies a year, a year just myself. And um, uh, we have to prevent it. And we prevent it by giving safe maternal health care to women. And I had to build a, I'd start a new charity to do that. And so we started, called it the Barbara May Foundation after grandmother, my Aunt Val's um, mother. And we called it the Barbara May Foundation because Barbara May, she was orphaned in the Spanish flu the last pandemic in 1919 and so she um, was an orphan girl but she was a very became a Christian a very godly young girl later got married to John my grandfather and they, she had they had eight children and then many grandchildren and great-grandchildren and she was a godly lady used to pray for us all and so at her funeral there was 72 descendants if you include all the married ones and uh, she prayed for us all and many of us were involved in philanthropic ministry work uh, around the world. So from this little orphan girl uh, who committed her life to Christ came this legacy so we called it the Barbara Bay Foundation.
1: It's a wonderful story. Let's talk about obstetric fistula surgery because this is what you've become renowned for. This is where you found a place where you could support Uh, women who were in poverty, women who were very, very vulnerable. And we don't see this occurring as much in western nations like australia where our medical facilities are so uh, far advanced but in nations in africa uh, this is a big big problem uh, give us an insight here and for listeners who might not be aware of of how the uh, the debilitating condition results from obstructed childbirth uh, give us some insight into what obstetric fistula surgery is <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah,
0: obstetric fissure. I mean, it might be easier if I explain it by uh, telling you a story of one of our, our patients. So um, Hilda was one of my patients in East Africa uh, quite recently, and she was married young, uh, probably about the age of 15. Um, didn't go to school from that point. In her village, there was, was some schools, but she was called... Her father said, no, you can't go to school anymore to, your, to get married and have children. So she went to get married... Got pregnant very quickly. And for most women in the world, there's simply no access to nurses, midwives, doctors, hospitals. So most women in the world deliver their babies at home without any access to medical care. So a lot of death and suffering occurs, for example, in the Afar area. When my aunt Vouse first started working there, one in 12 women would die during their lifetime trying to have a baby. Because without access to health care, that's what happens. But Hilda, in her village, she got into labour and after a full day of labour she still hadn't delivered. She was in agony on the mud hut floor and another full day of labour pushing and she still hadn't delivered after two days of labour. She had got into what's called obstructed labour, which happens to 5% of women all around the world, here in Australia, there in Africa. It means that the baby's not spitting out, either the baby's too big or coming out the wrong way or the mother's too small, it's getting stuck. So here in Australia that's diagnosed in labour, the midwife calls the doctor, the doctor comes in, performs the caesarean and you've got a live baby, live mother. But for Hilda, there was no way that she could call um, a doctor or a nurse or or get to a hospital. So she stayed in labour for another two days. And after four days of labor, she was unconscious and she delivered a stillborn child. It took her two more days to regain consciousness and when she did, she found out that she was leaking uncontrollably from her bladder and also her bowel. Because she'd been in labor for so long, the baby's head was pressed against her, her pelvis and all the tissues between of the birth canal and bladder and rectum and um, birth canal all had its blood supply cut off, And all those tissues died. So after she delivered the stillborn child, all those dead tissues came away and she was left with a big fistula or a hole between the bladder, outside world, rectum and outside world. So she leaks continually. Husband divorced her. She tried to go back to her family and be looked after by her parents and the parents couldn't keep her in their little hut so they built another little mud hut on the edge of the family compound and she just stayed in isolation, ashamed, ostracized. She was too ashamed to go out and meet people because of the way she smelled and she stayed there trying to do a bit of work on the farm, digging, hoeing, but she really lived life as an abandoned lady. The family saved what they could, uh, sold some livestock, and eventually actually sold part of their farm to get her medical treatment. And over a course of 10 years, they took her to five different hospitals, but the doctors weren't trained in fistula surgery, so they were operated, she was operated on, but not cured. So they'd become impoverished. they have lost all their possessions, and she's still not cured. And Hilda had thought about and even tried taking her own life because uh, you know, she couldn't bear to live like this any longer. She was found by our outreach workers, and I first met her some three years ago, four years ago now. And um, the damage to her internal organs was so great, it took three operations to to get her better. But eventually, um, we did get her better. And uh, she was when she recovered from the operation and had the catheter removed from her bladder, she was... Dry, she was continent, she could pass stool and urine without leaking at all. And she was absolutely transformed from being someone who had given up all hope of a, a life, uh, wanted to take a life and end it, to someone who was just so full of joy and full of happiness. And uh, we give thanks to God for, for that cure, as Hilda did. But now she's actually become an ambassador for us. She goes out to the villages looking for fistula patients and she brings them to us. And uh, when, you know, so when I was last. At that hospital where Hilda came to in Tanzania, she had brought four other patients to us uh, who are now all cured as well. And I'm hoping to get back in July um, to that same hospital again. And I hear Hilda's got another couple of patients that she's found in the villages and she's bringing to us as well. So transformed, beautiful, beautiful lady.
1: It is- and so that's what... a. It's a beautiful story, and, uh, and since uh, that story with Hilda, uh, there's been 7,000 other women in Africa who've been uh, the beneficiaries of your good work. Helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Wonderful to have Dr. Andrew Browning as our guest this hour. His book is called A Doctor in Africa. Andrew, you have got uh, the highest recommendations uh, for your wonderful work over these past two decades. Uh, The preface to your book written by none other than Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal Princess Anne and then a foreword from Her Excellency Mrs. Linda Hurley. Uh, You've got uh, certain endorsements there from some of the most wonderful women in the world.
0: Yeah, and I've been very blessed, and um, I think it's just a, a signal that um, that the women of people think this is important, which is wonderful. I, previously, I thought that the world has forgotten these these ladies with fistula, but obviously it's um, not in, not forgotten, and women uh, very important women, very influential women, um, haven't forgotten them, and that they would like to promote the, the work as well, which I find extraordinarily encouraging. <laughs>
1: And there's a bit of a story behind Princess Anne and her preface that she agreed to write this for you.
0: (laughs) Yes, there is a bit of a story. I I was... In Ethiopia, as a very young, young I was 30, and um, Princess Anne had come to visit the hospital I was working in um, with Catherine Hamlet, She's a lady that started a, um, a fistula hospital in Ethiopia. And I had never met anyone famous growing up in country barrel before, and I was incredibly, incredibly nervous uh, meeting the, the Queen's daughter. And there was such um, protocol that you had to be briefed upon, and um, hours of, do this, don't do that, and you just wonder what you're supposed to do. Anyway, I met um, Princess Anne, very, very nervous, and uh, she very graciously came up to talk to me because you're not allowed to preach her. And she um, said, you know, how did someone so young come to work and commit their lives to Ethiopia? And I began the story by saying, well, I first came here some years ago to work with my aunt in the desert, Aunt Val. And um, Aunt Val is quite eccentric. Um, I've described her as crazy. But um, behind Princess Anne was the British ambassador, And uh, he piped up and said, oh, he's got such a crazy aunt that lives here in Ethiopia. And I was absolutely mortified. I mean, I can call my aunt crazy, but not the British ambassador and not in front of the Queen's daughter. So um, I was just absolutely mortified. And Princess Anne recognized that. And um, she immediately came up and said, oh, don't worry, I've got two nephews who think I'm crazy as well. So what a lovely way to to (laughs) save the situation. So um, when we were thinking about who might endorse the book, I thought, oh, "Oh, maybe I'll write to Princess Anne. So I I wrote to the palace and uh, reminded her of that story. And uh, graciously, she agreed uh, to write The Preface, which is very nice
1: of her. And some might be thinking, isn't that interesting that Princess Anne might refer to herself as a crazy aunt? Andrew, just touch here for a moment before we move on on this idea that women who are suffering with obstetric fistula are literally socially outcast because of the debilitating effects of their condition.
0: And it's an awful thing to live with. They are leaking urine and often feces as well. Uh, just continually, there's no let up. They bleak continually every minute of every day. So if they're sitting for for five minutes, they've got a pool of urine and sometimes faeces underneath them. And they're very ashamed. They don't want to mix with other people. They don't have access to um, hygiene products. Often they don't have access very easily to water, just to even to wash themselves. So they're obviously smelling and they're very conscious of that and they don't want to be near people. I mean, I've had patients that have been blind. um, They said, oh, we can send you down the road and get your eyes fixed so you can see uh, before we fix your fistula if you like. And they've always said no no, 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 I don't mind about being blind, but fix my fistula because if i am got a fistula, no one will sit next to me and talk to me. But if I'm blind, they'll sit next to me and talk to me. So that's um, an awful, awful thing to live with. And 40% of our fistula patients have actually thought about or attempted suicide um, because of this condition. But not that's... Mm the the general thing, but it's not the, the rule um, because there are other ladies that cope quite well and are quite strong with their conditions. They've got very loving families and husbands who stick by them and care for them. I mean, I have had um, inspiring stories of ladies that have been suffering with a fistula for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And uh, I remember one lady that was brought on the back of a husband. The husband carried her in uh, on the back for some days from the village's and uh, to get treated, and she'd been living with a fistula for, I think, 30 to 30, 40 years, her husband caring for her, and then he carried her on her back um, with her urine going down his back um, uh, to get cured, and thankfully she was cured, and they both went back together.
1: And the beauty is that after surgery, lives can be transformed. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Ruth in Victoria. Hello, Ruth. Welcome along.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Neil. It's such a joy to hear, Andrew. It's unbelievable.
1: (laughs) It is. And Ruth, what are your thoughts when you hear a story like this?
0: Oh, I'm just so inspired and my dad is in heaven and he's he's just dancing because my dad is Ray Weir and he was your minister at St. Jude's barrel All right, okay. Well, that's a nice connection because i've got the app and oh i was absolutely over the moon and i'm thinking about dad because you remember his personality and your dad was his warden and oh dad was yeah. such a missions man and he's just dancing all over heaven i'm just it's just so <laughs> wonderful god bless you and stephanie and the family and the ministry oh this is amazing what and a uh, beautiful i mean, there's been many people There's been many people that helped me along my Christian faith, and your father was certainly one of them. So thank you. Oh, bless you, Andrew. Bless you. Bless the ministry. It's really, really exciting. Yeah,
1: and the book. Yeah. Ruth, wonderful to hear from you. Thank you so much for uh, picking up the phone and establishing that connection. And uh, I know that there'll be listeners all over Australia who feel something skip when we... Hear your story Andrew, it is magnificent and over this past couple of decades all the time that you've put into not just being there to do the surgeries but also with a bigger vision to develop the Barbara May Foundation and building maternity hospitals in countries around Africa and uh, I wonder whether you can give us an idea just where things have gone with the hospitals that you've been able to establish.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. And again, God has richly blessed us uh, to be able to do what we have been able to achieve. And um, I was working with Dr. Catherine Hammond for ten years in Ethiopia uh, after her shortly after her husband died, and doing purely fistula work, but I saw the need to do more fistula work and prevention and take what actually she and her husband had started in Ethiopia and spread it to the rest of Africa. So that's why we started the Barbara May Foundation, to do more prevention work and take what she has started in Ethiopia and take it to the rest of Africa. And we've also been helped to establish fistula units in places like Nepal and India and Bangladesh. So um, yeah, the work has certainly certainly spread. And primarily we, we um, treat fistulas, but our... Uh, our bigger work um, is fistula prevention and we do that by building maternity hospitals and training people in the villages how to detect someone in trouble and then refer them to the hospital and the first place we did that was with my aunt Thou in the Afar Desert as I said earlier on in this interview. One in 12 women were dying from pregnancy in that area during their lifetime and the problem was that the the only people attending deliveries in the villages was older women whose only qualification was that they had had a child themselves and, and survived. So the other ladies in the village said oh you must know what to do, here you go, Here's, you deliver everyone else. But they'd never been to school and a lot of what they were doing sometimes was harmful because um, they were just uh, practicing by superstition or traditional beliefs and they certainly had no scientific background. So vow. Trained them in what, what to do and what to do and equips them uh, through funds through the Barbara May Foundation to deliver safely in the villages. And she actually got the death rate down from 6,000 women dying to 100,000 deliveries to um, 550. Um, and that cost next to nothing, $50 to train a, a traditional birth attendant and $1.50 to equip one. And um But there were still 550 women dying per 100,000 deliveries, and that's far too many. In Australia, it's about seven, seven to 10. And so we had to build a hospital. So um, we had nothing really, had no money. We had the foundation just started, um, but all we could do was pray and, just miraculously, um, one old colleague, friend from Barrow, rang up and said, I've given a bonus. I'd like to give it to your projects. And then a, a church in Broken Hill, of all places, said, well, a, a man's just sold a business. We'd like to give it to, to one of your projects. And there we go. That was our hospital built in uh, the Afar Desert of Ethiopia. Um, we still have to do the running costs, and um, we do for the Barber May Foundation, for the generous donations of people in Australia. But um, that hospital has saved countless, countless lives. But um, we don't just do it just for the physical saving of lives either. We do it because we love God and God loves us and we want to share that with our patients. And so we've got a, a thing called the Mega Voice, um, which is a little solar-powered device that's uh, made by... Um, a guy called Tom Trezida uh, founded this company and then directs it. Uh, and they've given over a million, I think it might be two million now, of these mega voices around the world, little solar-powered devices that has the Word of God on, uh, the life-giving Word of God. But also um, we've been able to put health messages on these little devices as well. And so we give these little devices to our patients so they hear of God's love for them and uh, some important health messages as well. And they take them back to their villages. So it's a wonderful way to get God's work out. And God certainly works some miracles. If I've got time for a, a, one particular story to illustrate, yes. Um, Neil. Yes. yeah. So, I mean, um, a lady called Agnes, uh, she's a wonderful lady. She actually got a, hip, um, a fistula from a hippopotamus, which was very unusual for us. She was gathering grass beside a lake and a hippo came out of the lake, knocked her over, and trod on her pelvis. So four tons of hippo going through her pelvis, which completely shattered it. She just crawled home uh, and lay on the floor of her hut for, for three months and just wasted away. The bones of her pelvis had severed her bladder, and so she was leaking urine. And um, so she was eventually found leaking urine and thought, oh, we've the people who found her said, oh, we'd better get you to the fistula hospital um, in, in Eastern Africa that we had. And so she came to us, but she was given up hope. Um, the, the bones had severed her nerve to her left leg, so she was paralyzed. She had the fistula. She had pressure sores from lying on the mud floor of the hut in urine for those three months down to her bones. She had lost so much weight. Uh, she was ready to die. So she was refusing to eat. She wouldn't even speak to anyone or look anyone in the eye. We really didn't know how to what to do for her. So all we could do was pray, speak with her. Our chaplain spoke with her as well, and we gave her the mega voice. And she listened to God's love for her in the mega voice and she was absolutely transformed. Um, just just spiritually, just her whole heart and her the joy in her face. Um, she must have given her life to Christ and Christ changed her, her heart because only Christ can do that. As doctors we can maybe tinker around with some physical things um, but only God can change people's hearts and I'm sure that's what happened to Agnes. She was absolutely transformed and God really worked a miracle on her because six months later she was not only transformed in her heart but she walked out of the hospital uh, completely cured from her fistula as well and we just give thanks to God for that and um, God is working miracles and he's touching people's lives and it's such a, a privilege and a joy um, to be part of that, to be his servant.
1: And when women are so socially outcast uh, with obstetric fistula and they go back to their village, no doubt. It's almost miraculous that they are transformed in such a way. So they take that mega voice back to their village, and it's got the health messages, but it's also got the gospel messages, and uh, people are being impacted by that. Take us back to some early days here, Andrew, because now that you're establishing hospitals, the training of people to uh, to be able to support the surgery practices, no doubt, is growing all the time. But in those early days, it was women who had themselves had the surgery who were your main support in theatre. Uh, that must have been tough tough times, early days.
0: Yeah, when I first started doing fistula surgery back in the nineties in Ethiopia, um, there was no formal training program. And the only, um, if there was anyone who was to be the person who taught me to do fistula surgery, was a lady called Mamit, who was actually an ex-fistula patient of the Hamlets. And, um, she couldn't be cured and, um, um just stayed on at the, the hospital because not all fistula patients can be cured. And so she was one of those unlucky ones that couldn't, but she was a very bright girl. And, um, was asked by the to start helping in the hospital, which she did, just making beds and sweeping floors. And uh, eventually she was asked uh, to come to theatre and start to, to assist Reg Hamelin uh, doing operations. And she started to, to learn also how to suture, how to cut, how to, how to tie. Um, and before long, she was actually operating on fistula patients herself. So um, she has now cured over 2,000 uh, fistula patients in her In her life, and uh, together we had traveled all around the world teaching others how to do surgery as well saways togo in india and and, um, and she's traveled with others to um Tanzania and Uganda to to teach as well another doctor called Ambai she went with and um yeah a remarkable lady and she's the one who taught me how to do it but um she you know, could do the simple repairs, but then we had to do, I had to develop um ways to do the harder repairs and so we've we've developed um, lots of new surgical techniques which we're now with what's called the International Federation of Obstetricians Gynecologists. It's a big international organisation that's the umbrella for gynecologists all around the world. has something like 2 million members um, all around the world so I'm chair of the fistula training committee, um, the fistula committee and uh, we um, oversee the um, global Fistula training program. So we've got trainees, um, 68 trainees currently in uh, 28 different countries around the world and all uh, learning these new techniques. Um, and my job is to train the trainers. So we've got training centers in Tanzania and Nigeria, Nigeria, and Kenya, um, of course, back in Ethiopia. And so the work is certainly growing and um, now there's over 400 hospitals are doing fistula surgery around the world. So the, the work has, has grown remarkably, so we're thankful for that. But I mean, more important is, importantly, we should be preventing it because um, it is preventable. The world's first fistula hospital was actually opened in New York in 1855 because there was obstetric fistula in America. And um, that's since closed because there's such a rarity now uh, anywhere in places like Australia, or um, America or Europe, but um, there's still many um, around Africa and Southeast Asia, Um, but we would aim to have them there too so we can close the fish hospitals that we've opened over the years.
1: Andrew, I mentioned in our introduction how you could have chosen to open your own surgical practice here in Australia, it could have been a very lucrative career for you. And, you know, going back to age six and a seed sown into your own heart and uh, moving towards this idea, God plants a desire in you that you'll serve him in mission in Africa. You could have chosen a lucrative career. And I know that there'll be listeners who might be thinking, uh, well, you know, did you make the right choice? How do you feel? I mean, it's been a hard road, hasn't it? Uh, You could have had it a lot easier if you'd have just stayed home. How do you respond when people think about, you know, a surgeon and the choice to serve God rather than to just do something in your own backyard?
0: Well, when you commit your life to Christ, Christ changes you, doesn't he? And, um, I mean, God has never commanded us to go out and make lots of money. Uh, but he's warned us uh, about the, the perils of having lots of money. And I think if I was having a career back in a, Australia, I think I probably w- would have forfeited and become quite wealthy perhaps. So I, I would have forfeited something of my relationship with Christ. There's a, a wonderful verse in Proverbs that says, um, Give us today our daily bread. Do not give us too much. Otherwise, we might disown the Lord and say, Who is he? And it is true. I mean, the, the wealthy nations um, generally turn their back on God because they have everything they have heaven on their tier. But we never have that problem in, in places around Africa where I live. Everyone believes in a God, and everyone is crying out to a God. And their their faith is so real and vibrant. It's um, the blessing of that is far outweighs any sort of material material blessing. And um, I mean, so my purpose in life has been to to serve God. And uh, the although I've been going very weakly, can only do it because God has forgiven me and he strengthens me and he's so patient with me. But um, it's, it's not to seek funds, to seek money, because um, I don't believe that's one of the purposes of life. If to, to get lots of money was a purpose in, in life, then most of the people in the world simply have failed in their in life's purpose. And But uh, in Australians, when we're so wealthy here, although sometimes we don't feel it, Comparatively, we are so incredibly wealthy, but uh, depression, anxiety, broken marriages, broken um, sad lives is is rife. It certainly hasn't brought happiness or contentment. So clearly, the accumulation of wealth is not one of the purposes in life, but I've I've found it to be seeking God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and uh, to love him and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what um, gives meaning to, to life.
1: When I give the website in just a few minutes and some listeners will be thinking I need to hear how I can be a supporter of that work, the Barbara May Foundation, I'll give that website in just a few moments, but it's not just money people can give. Uh, No doubt there are opportunities for people to serve in mission if they're in connection with you. What ways are there that if people connecting with you today, Andrew, uh, could actually get on a plane and be in Africa when the opportunity presents itself to be a support on the ground, in the field, uh, serving in your hospitals? Is that opportunity there?
0: Yeah, that opportunity
1: is there, not currently,
0: um, with the, the current travel restrictions. But we have uh, had many volunteer obstetricians and midwives, that's what we need in our hospitals, um, come over and um, train and, and work alongside our staff. And our staff are remarkable, our midwives in Ethiopia and Tanzania. And uh, we're about to open, in conjunction with the Lutheran Church in South Sudan and America, are about to open a, um, a new maternity hospital in South Sudan in June. Next month, uh, which is very exciting. So, we've got uh, hopefully an Australian midwife coming over and a Dutch midwife coming over to uh, help us there. So, yes, we do need obstetricians and midwives to, to come and serve as, as volunteers. Um, the longer the better, of course, because the longer you are, the, the more you learn the culture and the more you'll relate to the people and, and understand how things are done. Um, and really get the love and respect of the people. And that's when you can really serve and um, make a difference and feel part of the, the ministry.
1: Some might be thinking, is it safe? To serve in Africa. And as you say, you can't get there right now because of COVID. And I don't know whether you've got a very quick uh, little update as to the sorts of things you might be hearing about COVID in African nations. But uh, but this idea generally, uh, is it safe to go and serve in Africa? Uh, What are your thoughts for listeners who might be thinking I could do something here? Yeah,
0: the um, first of all, the the COVID situation. I've just been very blessed. The government's given me permission to leave several times during the coronavirus pandemic, and I was just out of quarantine about three or four weeks ago and hopefully going back in in another four weeks' time to South Sudan and Tanzania. Um, Yeah, the coronavirus is there. And um, it is is taking its toll. Nothing like the scale of India, Nepal, and America or, Italy, or Europe, Italy, um, but it, but it is there, and, and it's a concern. Um, but also things like malaria are a concern in Africa, which takes about two to three million children um, die of that every year, or six thousand children die of um, waterborne diseases, giving diarrhoea um, every every day. Six thousand children die. So there's many many things of health concerns. Um, in Africa, um, but is, is it safe? Uh, there are times when I've gone to places like Sierra Leone or into Congo or um, um, uh, in Somalia, Somaliland, where perhaps it wasn't a hundred percent safe. But I, I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the right question is: What should I do to serve the Lord? What's the best? What's the right thing to do? And uh, clearly the right thing to do was to go and, and serve the poor in those situations. God has chosen to, to look after me, protect me so far. Um, but maybe there will come a day that I, I you know, might get into real danger or even die doing what I do. But um, I don't think that should stop you from serving God. After all, I don't think Christ on his way to the cross was asking the Father, is it safe? Um, he gave his life for us because it was the right thing to do and to bring us to a relationship with him.
1: You are still young enough to have a whole lot more in a second volume of your uh, book that you've written. Uh, you're back home now. There are some family reasons for that. You've got children have grown up and uh, their education is uh, at hand at the moment. You can't get the sort of education that you'd like to see your own children enter into, uh, no doubt in Africa, but they're back on home soil for a season.
0: Yeah, they are. I mean, we, my wife... Um is very hard-working lady and um, she built two schools to send our children to first in Ethiopia and then in Tanzania so our children went to those schools as a primary school but high school is a different matter and we, we could have sent them to a, a boarding mission school in Kenya but many other family reasons we decided to, to, to return home. To Australia for high schooling, and so they're, they're going to high school back here in Australia now. Um, and I'm commuting back to Africa and running the charities from Australia uh, while I'm here. Yeah, so I don't know what will happen in in the future. I, it's in God's hands. I would like to think that after the children are, are through with education, I might move back permanently again. But um, that's still a, a few years off. And but in the meantime, I'll see still keep commuting back as much as I can and um, teaching and operating and supporting our hospitals and God willing, um, uh, uh, expanding our work as well, perhaps.
1: Andrew, your story is inspiring on so many levels and I do want to point listeners to the book. It's wonderfully written. It's easy to read. Uh, Let me encourage listeners, uh, if you want a book to be inspired by, this is one to get a hold of. It's called A Doctor in Africa. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Browning. And you'll be able to get that book from everywhere you find good books. and if you simply remember to Google a Doctor in Africa, Dr. Andrew Browning, you'll be able to get a hold of it. But let me ask you uh, just is people go to the barbaramafoundation dot com website. Uh, there's an opportunity there, no doubt, to be a financial supporter of the Barbara May Foundation. We were talking about how people might connect on all sorts of different levels, whether you're uh, working in obstetrics or nursing and uh, all sorts of other ways people might be able to support. Uh, So, Andrew, you're encouraging people to make connection with you because when borders open and opportunities arise, there'll be opportunities for Aussies to get involved here.
0: Absolutely, and but in the meantime too, I mean fundraising is always a, an issue for us, and it doesn't cost a great deal. It's two hundred Australian dollars provides all we need to have a lady have four clinic visits during her pregnancy, or blood tests and ultrasounds, a delivery in our hospital, including a caesarean if she needs one, and the postnatal visit. Um, all cost two hundred Australian dollars. So. Not a great deal of money uh, for all of that, and the results for our pregnant ladies in our hospitals are the same as you'd find in the hospitals here. I think that's money well invested and often saves women babies' lives and women's lives and stops a fistula from happening. Um, but prayer also, we haven't been able to do any of this without prayer support from our supporting churches and um, our Christian brothers and sisters. Yeah, So prayer and, and, and finances is how people help.
1: Wonderful to talk to you, Andrew Browning, and uh, just to recognise that you were uh, recognised with that Order of Australia medal just a couple of years back and uh, listeners will know why uh, when they hear your wonderful story. The book is A Doctor in Africa, that website, foundation.com Dr Andrew Browning, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Great. Right, thanks very much, Neil.